1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and today we're going to talk with three libertarian candidates who are going to be running in Tuesday's election. Uh, our guests in the studio are Rebecca sink Burris, a candidate in the race for United States Senate, Greg Knott, a candidate in the Ninth District Congressional race, and David Doc Murdoch, who's a candidate for state representative, District 60. You can join us on the program by phoning 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. And our web address is WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You can go to the website for uh, discussion, uh, live discussion on the program, and to uh, send us a question if you want us to ask a question. So thanks for being here. Mary Catherine, good to see you again. Hi, Bob. Glad
2: to be here. Nice
1: to see you. And uh, all three of our candidates, I believe uh, you're all new to the program, right? I don't think we've had a libertarian show before, which is – you know, I have to – give uh, credit to Dan, our producer, because I think it's a great idea to have a show right before the election um, with uh, some people whose views I know as a newspaper editor don't always make it into our paper. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's good that we can explain a little bit about what the libertarians are all about. Rebecca, you've been at this uh, quite a while. I know you ran Was your first race in 1996 state representative?
3: Um, Actually not. I know I ran a few years earlier than that, um, probably in the early 80s, for one of the county positions, Mm -hmm. uh, either commissioners or um, council. I can't remember which.
1: (laughs) But state representative 1996, you ran for U.S. Senate once before in Mm -hmm. 1998 Mm -hmm. uh, for secretary of state in 2002 and now for U.S. Senate in 2010. What keeps you sort of coming back to run as a libertarian? You have such an uphill battle to try to – To certainly to win a a race.
3: Well, it's really all about building the party Mm -hmm. and getting a uh, a forum for the views. Because through running for office, that's often the first way that people find out about the Libertarian Party, and that's one of the strongest reasons that I do it. So that people keep discovering uh, those ideas, Mm -hmm. and so many people will say to me, "Oh, I didn't know there was a political party that felt like I did," and that. That really keeps keeps you going in this. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
4: Greg, this is your first first run, first run for federal, federal office. office yeah. I, I actually ran unsuccessfully for township board back in two thousand two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why did you decide to run in the ninth district this year? Well, like like eighty percent of of Americans, I'm dissatisfied with the job that Congress is doing, and I'm dissatisfied with the other choices in the race. So mm-hmm. I, I thought I'd give voice. To, to people that, are, that have that same frustration and, and give people an alternative. And how long have you been involved with the Libertarian Party? I, I got active with the local group uh, probably 2002, and I've probably been voting that way since 1998. Mm-hmm. Okay. And
1: David, Doc, you say you're, you're well-known as Doc Murdoch. Yes. But, but yeah, you're, the ballot calls you David W. Doc Murdoch? Okay? Correct. Okay. So uh, is this your first run
5: for— I ran for county council for Brown County a few years back. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide to get into this on a new level to run for state representative? Well, because I live in the district and I was told that Ms. Welsh had in the past run unopposed a few times and uh, it was decided we just couldn't let that happen again. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: Well, if you have questions for our Libertarian candidates who are here today, please phone us at 855-0811. 1-877-285-9348. One eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, And our web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Well, I would just really appreciate uh, libertarian, what it means to be a libertarian 101. Who wants to take it? I'll I'll start, okay, Uh, great, because there is it's there's quite a depth to the whole philosophy. I'm sure I'm asking for what is probably going to have to be an oversimplification, but start with me there, if you would, please.
3: We really are the uh, historical heirs of the founding fathers because we believe in the limited government vision that they put into practice with our Constitution, and that limited government vision does include um, the free market as your economic system, because that's the only system that is consistent with recognizing individual rights, and that's the individual right in this case, to trade with others without interference. Uh, A lot of the people came over to this country because they were wanting to leave behind the mercantilism of Europe that prevented them from earning a living because they weren't born into this guild or, you know, part of that part of the community. And so, economic freedom was a big part of why people came over here, as well as uh, religious freedom, that I think we, we all think of first. But there's, we can we can sometimes say we're economically conservative and socially liberal. That economically, we want the free market and understand that that produces prosperity uh, in the society. So completely without regu- regulation? No, not completely. We're, the government is there to protect from the use of force and fraud in individual relationships as well as in business relationships. So okay. no regulation does – and government does play a role. Okay. It's just a more limited role than I, than I think we've grown into today. Okay. Um, and then on the social issues side, you know, people have a right to live their life as they choose and the government's role is to protect and have equal rights for every citizen in society, equal under the law.
1: Mm-hmm. So on a uh, – let's just sort of frame this with some of the, um, some of the big issues of sure. our day, health care um, would a libertarian perspective have supported the uh, government health care plan as as proposed by President Obama and passed by the Congress.
3: No, we don't. We don't would not consider health care a right. It is a service and it is um, a, a something that is best provided by the free market, which we have not had in health care in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than 50 cents out of every dollar is spent by the federal government when it comes to health care. And that's that's not a free market. There's lots of regulations in there that prevent people from making their own arrangements that would lower the cost. Uh, one good example of that is uh, LASIK eye surgery. Uh, Many people have had that, and over the last 10, to 15 years, the price has come down. The uh, quality has gone up. There's been innovation. And that's what you get when you have a price mechanism that can work for people. And when you put um, a third-party payer system in, which we've pretty much moved to, um, you don't have that price mechanism to help patients or doctors find treatments that are uh, efficacious and yet are not um, overly expensive.
1: Mm Greg, do you want to respond to that question? And I, I want to, again, sort of frame the question this way. Um, you know, it strikes me that if we had three Republicans on today or three Democrats on today, we would be really talking to them about their specific perspective on issues. Mm-hmm. And today, because I guess because we're not as well versed in the, the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party and a lot of our listeners aren't, we're talking about party positions. But so when when you guys answer these questions, please think about, you know, the party uh, philosophy versus maybe if you have some independent twists on those. Does that I'm, make sense?
4: Yeah, and, and I'm going to have a lot of independent <laughs> twists on in those. Uh, Re- Rebecca and and I think Dave are probably running on a much more traditional Libertarian Party platform, and I'm running on what I call the no-bull platform, and, and my uh, I guess my positions are, are much more uh, gradual. I, I, in 100 years, I, I'd like to get to where Rebecca and Dave want to be, too. But I think in the next year or two, I, I think we need to, to walk it back gradually. So on health care, for example, uh, I favor what's called the Healthy Americans Plan, which was a bipartisan proposal by uh, Wyden and Bennett within the Congress, and it it did a lot more to control cost. And I think cost is really the the major problem with our health care system. And what's, what's known as Obamacare, that's its major failing, is it didn't address cost enough.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, all right, we have a phone call. We'll get back to some of these issues, but we have a phone call already, so we want to go to Al
2: on the phone. Al? Yes. Uh, I just received a mailing that was uh, paid for by the uh, Indian Democrats, and I'm sure it was mailed to all registered Republicans, and it uh, is uh, an endorsement for Greg Knott, the real conservative. And I'd like to hear uh, what they whether they think this is going to hurt the Libertarian Party or is this going to help the Libertarian Party.
1: Yeah, Greg, do you want to uh, address that? I know I saw a copy of that mailing, too, that said uh, the real conservative in the race is Greg Knott. And I know you put out a press release about that this morning. I did.
4: I did. And I, I think that the mailer is true. I am the only true conservative in the race. But it's intentionally misleading because I'm also the only true progressive in this race. Now, that may sound odd to some of your listeners, but uh, we were talking about the libertarian philosophy before and it's actually uh, influenced by two other philosophies. One's called paleoconservatism and the other is called classical liberalism. And, and uh, libertarians are the best example of that. And, and many people identify themselves as socially liberal and fiscally conservative and don't know that that's a libertarian. In fact, I believe it was a Rasmussen poll that showed 45% of Americans actually identify themselves as socially liberal and fiscally conservative, they just don't know what that's called. So so I I think there's a lot more people out there that identify themselves that way. But but there are there are in my press release 13 major issues where I am much further to the left and much more progressive than Baron Hill, the Democratic incumbent, and and I think they were trying to mislead voters into thinking that that I was somehow to the right of of the other candidates, and that's certainly not the case.
1: Mm-hmm. But uh, would you call yourself more conservative
4: than Todd Young? And and how would that be? How would you define that? Well, it, it depends on the issue you're talking about. In in many ways, yes, uh, you know. But I, I think there's a kind of a wraparound effect where where the most you know the most progressive person and the most libertarian person actually have a lot in common. We see this in Congress with Ron Paul and Barney Frank, who've both uh, who have co-sponsored legislation to audit the Federal Reserve, which many people under under the misunderstanding that that's somehow a federal institution. It's actually a private banking institution that's monitored and over. You know, there's some congressional oversight there, but but uh, they they've worked together on that, and they've also worked together on uh, cutting wasteful overseas military spending by a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. You know. Th- those are great things to be working together on, and, and they're ideologically opposite ends of the spectrum, but, but really there's a wraparound effect, and, and that's what I am. I'm I'm a wraparound effect. I'm not partisan. My, my solutions are nonpartisan, and I, I think they're just kind of common sense. Mm-hmm. David, Doc, uh, if I can call you Doc. Yes. Um, how would you
1: sort of classify yourself as a libertarian? Are you closer to Greg or closer to, to Rebecca?
5: Uh. I think uh, all three of us probably – the main point in uh, being a libertarian I believe is the constitution. And to tell you the truth, I try to simplify everything down to that fact. Does it fit within the constitution? Um, A lot of people don't understand that the constitution was basically written for two reasons. One, to guarantee our rights that we naturally have through natural law. And the second is to keep government small enough that they can't take it away. And that is the problem. Government's gotten too big. So I try to boil everything down to be that simple. And it can be that simple. It's only got to be complicated if you want to make it complicated. Mm-hmm. But time the government comes out and passes legislation that says you must or you can't, that's force. And I'm against that. Um, that's the bottom line.
1: Well, one of, the, you know, one of the big issues in the state of Indiana, and you are uh, – once again, you're running for District 60, state representative, um, is on the, the ballot this time, the property tax referendum. Yes. Which would uh, cap property taxes at 1%, 2 and 3%. So how would you line up on
5: that? I oppose it mm-hmm. because I think once that is in place, it will be in place forever. I, I think property taxes actually just need to be repealed. Mm-hmm. as long as there's a property tax. We don't own our property, and property rights are one of our most important rights. Uh, it would be better to repeal it and just have a complete reformation of the entire state tax system. Mm-hmm. So, how,
0: how would you pay for, um, I don't know, just regular services, roads, and that sort of thing?
5: Well, like I said, just reform the system. You don't stop taxes. I 100% believe that we need to pay for government to do as it was designed to do okay but anything that government has as far as a program that is outside of the state of indiana constitution we shouldn't be paying for there's so much of that and that's why the government gets so big and it's in it's got his fingers in every facet of our life and it doesn't need to be.
0: What about um, for example care of the people in our state that can't care for themselves? How would you handle that sort of a problem? I'm thinking of people with um, severe mental illness um, you know um, that sort of thing.
5: I I don't think it's the government's job to set up programs to do that. I think it could be done privately and it always was in the past. Uh, That's I mean, that's what I think. Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, again, Doc, what are the key things then? Uh, police and fire. I know libertarians are uh, for security, I, I guess, for um, the public. What other things do you, do, do you uh, as you interpret the Indiana Constitution, should government be funding versus some of the things that it's funding now?
5: Uh, I'd rather talk about what they shouldn't okay. be funding. <laughs> that's fine. I'll. Let's talk about grants and subsidies. First of all, those need to be cut immediately. Think of the millions of dollars that could be cut right directly with a stroke of a pen out of the state budget. Along with that, the entire departments that are there only to administrate those. Grants and subsidies, as far as I'm concerned, are money stolen from us by the government so politicians can give it back to special interest groups to curry favor and special favors and support during their campaigns. That's all it is. That money would be much better left where it was taken from and used there because the government also spends most of it before they even give it out. So if you give the government a dollar, they might give you 50 cents back in a grant. And it's our money to begin with that they stole. So... So give me an example of a a grant or a granting program that you would want
1: to do away with. All of them. Okay. (laughs) All right. Rebecca, um, back to the sort of the philosophies of of the uh, Libertarian Party again. Is Doc representing the philosophies? I mean, do do you define it as narrowly as Doc does?
3: I'd like to get us back towards the constitutions, both of them. And, you know, obviously, when you start cutting, you have to be um, strategic and sensible in where you, where you cut first, um, you know, non-essentials. I heard someone I – actually, I think it was um, Brad Ellsworth yesterday saying, uh, you know, he was around or knew about the um, oh, shutdown of government. I forget what years that was because um, they wouldn't pass a budget or whatever. And at that time, they were told only essential services – well, that's a pretty good way to look at it, essential services, and then very carefully grow out from there. Um, you know, but you have to look at the Constitution for that. But I think some of the first places you can cut would be things like bailouts and subsidies to big corporations. You know, There is just no place for that. And it really is um, a gigantic problem, and it would save this country millions and billions of dollars not to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would much rather be helping people at the other end of the spectrum, albeit government is not the most efficient way to do that. And I would like programs to work better than what I generally see government programs working. But we need to work towards that uh, in a gradual basis. And the other aspect uh, that people forget about is that if we open up the economy, stop with all of the nitpicking regulations that make it so hard for people to start a business and make a living on their own – then we will have less people that need help and it can be down to those who really absolutely cannot help themselves. And that would be much easier for civil society to uh, be taking on that role again then. And sometimes government has crowded out civil society and has weakened civil society by doing that and libertarians would prefer to see civil society strengthened. Our churches, our community organizations, you know, those really help a community be a community. And when government takes over those jobs, it is it is weakening to those.
0: So why do you think uh, things have evolved
3: then the way they
0: have? If if in fact, um, you know, it's it's right and proper then that the more locally based churches and organizations like that take care of their own, if you will, if I'm not
3: misstating what you mm-hmm, said. Mm-hmm.
0: How uh, explain to me why you think society and, and care for those folks if
3: it has evolved the way it has? Well, I think it was Jefferson who said it's the natural thing for government to grow and for liberty to to shrink and that's a lot of what has happened i read a very humorous uh, thing this morning on how government programs grow and and it was something about a, a junkyard out in the middle of the desert and they decided oh my somebody might steal that or get hurt there or whatever so we need a night watchman and then we needed someone to develop the program you know for the night watchman so we hired two more people and then we needed someone to oversee that program for the one night watchman and it just kept growing and growing from there until the point was oh my we're spending way too much we have to cut back who'd they fire the night watchman. (laughs) And that is a lot of times what happens when we look at cutting back in government. They'll go to the important person or service and try to cut there rather than in the um, administration of all these programs which really takes the bulk of that money and employs the bulk of Mainly college-educated people who really could find work in the private sector.
0: Okay.
3: We've we've had a couple of okay. comments here come in. Um, here's one that
0: came in via live chat. Um, it says, and this is really a comment, but you're welcome to comment back if you wish yeah Yeah, comment on the comment thanks the founding fathers state the common good quote-unquote is important the libertarian viewpoint seems to be it is only the individual who is important also all main religions have in their theologies the importance of society or looking out and Mm -hmm. taking care of one's neighbor do you wish to
3: comment on that i totally agree it's very important for society to look out for their neighbors The uh, Common Good Clause has to be looked at in relationship to the rest of the Constitution and to uh, the intent. And it was not the intent uh, of the founders to have the government doing everything for everyone. That's why there are 16 enumerated powers in our Constitution of what the government is allowed to do. And outside of that, it was to be left to the states and to the individual. The individual is the smallest minority. And we must look after that person 's um, rights and privileges as a human being and and that 's what the Constitution is about. It is not saying the individual is the most important important person, and everyone should be self sufficient and, and not depend on community that 's absolutely not what it means. We have to have communities we are a, a human beings live in societies, and you know that should be strengthened and and that is a I think a misunderstanding of the libertarian view. Um, and I blame ourselves. We've had some of the best ideas and some of the worst marketing that we could possibly have, and um, and I'm hoping to you know move that along. But I think even Adams and Jefferson couldn't
0: agree exactly on on you know the the Constitution and and what it meant and how far it reached. I mean these are. Discussions that go on—they—they I mean, they started at the top, and you know, two hundred plus years later, certainly, you know, they continue. So, I do think
3: that there's an awful lot of room for uh, interpretation. There is, but one of the main reasons that our government is set up like it is—it came from the states. The states came together and formed the federal government, and the idea was for the federal government to be limited, mm-hmm. and the states to be where you experiment with those things, and that way. If an experiment worked, fine, other uh, states would copy that model. If it didn't work, it wasn't hurting the whole country. And people could vote with their feet by leaving one state and going to another, who's had policies that they preferred. Mm-hmm. And so that's where where those experiments can take place, rather than at the federal level. So federal mandates must drive you crazy. I don't like them a whole lot. Okay,
0: <laughs> I, I got I, another comment yeah, too. Greg, I, b- yeah, go before,
1: ahead. well, before I go to, to Gray, I just want to ask Doc because you know Rebecca's talking about how a lot of the power should come from the states. You seem, I mean, you talked about the Indiana Constitution, um, you. Uh, were you talking about the Indiana Constitution
5: or more of a federal constitution? Well, actually both. Yeah. Uh, as far as the experimentation at the state level, it sh- I mean, you sh- the state should look for the best way to do things. But when they try something and it doesn't work, then stop it. Stop it and move to something else. If it's a problem that needs to be addressed then and you aren't addressing it effectively, then stop what you're doing and try something else. But what's done now is just put layers and layers and layers of legislation on top of it and throw more money at it. And the next year, you look at it and say, wow, that didn't work. We must need more money. And that money comes right out of my pocket and your pocket. So I would think that you would care about
4: that. Greg? I wanted to give you one federal mandate that I'm in favor of that hasn't gotten a lot of play. It's it's about I-69. I I would like to co-sponsor legislation in Congress to use what they did with the the federal mandate for seatbelt laws they didn't say states you have to have a seatbelt law they said states if you don't you're not getting any more federal highway money well my proposal is that Indiana not get any more federal highway money until they choose either the no build I69 option or the route that doesn't go through Bloomington with the new terrain it would have to follow U.S. 41 up to I-70 and across to Indianapolis. That'd save a billion dollars, at least a billion dollars, which could be used to help the folks down around the Louisville area, so they don't have to pay tolls on their existing bridge to to pay for their new East End Bridge. I mean, it makes it makes too much sense, and and INDOT and Governor Daniels have it wrong, and and I'd like to go over their head, and and I think this would be a very popular. Uh, proposal in Congress because all the other districts in Indiana will surely sign on when they see that all this money will now be available for projects in their area instead of wasting it with New Terrain 69.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another listener comment that has come in, um, and it's actually a question. It says, I'm curious what the candidates think about climate change. Does the government have a role there? Go ahead. Can I go first? Yes,
4: I, I, I've gone on the record uh, as saying that climate change is real, And it may very well be caused uh, by man, but the cap-and-trade proposal is not the right proposal. I agree with Brad Ellsworth and his vote against cap-and-trade rather than my Democratic opponent, opponent, uh, Baron Hill. He voted for cap-and-trade. I think that was the wrong proposal. Uh, We really need a voluntary agreement such as Kyoto or Copenhagen, which they weren't able to get done. Instead, cap and trade would just be a unilateral solution. Would their their only teeth to it is is a trade war, and and we're we're already suffering from uh, high unemployment. A trade war and iso- you know, isolationism is not the answer. And also, it, it would tend to uh, put jobs, take jobs from America, and put them over in China, where the environmental regulations are even more lax, and we'll we'll get more. Uh, Dirty coal plants from China because of cap and trade. So I think it's it's actually counterproductive. Okay. All right. We're gonna. If you guys have thoughts about uh, about
1: global warming. We'll get to those after we take a short break. But we're talking with three uh, libertarian candidates. I want to tell you again who they are before we go to break. Rebecca Sink-Burris is a candidate in the race for United States Senate. Greg Knott, a candidate in the 9th District Congressional race. And David Doc Murdoch is a candidate for State Representative District 60. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from The Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And uh, we have three guests with us today. Rebecca Sink-Burris is a libertarian candidate in the race for United States Senate. Her opponents, of course, are uh, Dan Coats and and, – Mr. Ellsworth, if the uh, Greg not, Greg Noble not, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, candidate in the ninth district against um, Baron Hill and Todd Young, and uh, our uh, third guest is David Doc Murdoch. David W. Doc Murdoch is how it appears on the ballot. Candidate for State Representative in District Sixty, Peggy Welch is the Democrat, Steve Hogan the Republican in that race. If you have questions or comments, 1-877-285-9348. Our website is WFIU.org slash noon edition. Greg, no
4: bowl not. That's the way it appears on the ballot, as you mentioned to right, me. Like No Bull is your no, nickname? Is no. that the idea? It's a nickname. It also doubles as my campaign platform. It's an acronym that stands for my six signature issues. I can just run through them real quick. Sure. sure. Go right ahead. N stands for no bailouts. No business is too big to fail in a true free market. O is overhaul the tax system for job growth, simplicity, and fairness. The current system fails on all three counts. B is bring home the troops. It's too expensive to subsidize the security of wealthy nations like Japan, Germany, and Korea. Uh, you is unconditionally in foreign aid foolishness. I think it's foolish to borrow from China and Japan and everyone else that buys treasury bills uh, just to give it away to corrupt dictators like Karzai in the in the kleptocracy known as Afghanistan. Of course, Karzai stole the election and, and we sent our Secretary of State over there to, to say that that government was legitimate anyway. I, I think that was a mistake the uh, first l in no bull is lower the debt and i'm i'm the only candidate in the race that has serious proposals to to slash uh two areas number 1 the military budget is as big as the rest of the world's military military spending combined so that's a that's a very low hanging fruit a very ripe area for cutting and also corporate welfare uh you know Agricultural subsidies, for example, 72% of the benefits go to the top 10% of agribusiness. So that's Robin Hood. Robin Hood reverse, and it's got to end. And the final L is limit the influence of lobbyists on Washington. There's too many lobbyists. They have too, too corrupting of influence. I'm the only candidate in the race to have signed the pledge at fightwashingtoncorruption.com. I have to give you great credit
1: for... Figuring out a way to campaign on election day right there in the voter booth <laughs> by having no ball on mm-hmm, the ballot—that's—I mm-hmm. mean, it's not your
4: official name or your real given name, right? Nick- nickname, nickname. Nicknames are allowed, and, yeah. and it, mm-hmm. uh, it it doubles up the. the there was a, a time period where people could have challenged that, and, mm-hmm. and uh, nobody challenged it. So I'll, I'll use All's it. That's fair. There sure you go. All right, All right, we have a couple of phone calls. Chris is first. Chris, Yeah. Go right yeah. ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, I uh, wanted to ask a question about third parties in general, and I'm sure that the candidates are are familiar with uh, some voting mechanisms that exist in other states where um, you can kind of designate like a second choice where your vote would switch to that uh, candidate. Um, because I, I think a lot of people who might be interested in a third party, uh, you know, hear this thing like, I don't want to, quote-unquote, waste my vote. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if the the candidates were aware of those voting mechanisms. I think they exist in, like, New York, and and I'm not sure what exactly it's called, but uh, if they could talk to that.
4: Instant runoff voting. That's definitely what we need here in Indiana. They've already got it in in several of the locations you mentioned. uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, I was talking to someone from there the other day, and they have it there. It works out great. There's no longer the argument of We've got to vote for the lesser of two evils because I I really, really don't want so-and-so in there. So, you know, I'm going to vote for somebody that I really don't want. I really don't think they're the best candidate, but I'm going to hold my nose and vote for them anyway. So how does it work? Yeah. Rebecca?
3: Well, I'm not all that – I'm not an expert on the instant Uh runoff voting. But if you vote uh, your first choice and then you vote your second choice – and then your third choice. Well, if your first choice um, doesn't win, then your vote is counted for your second choice. Mm-hmm. And so you've got more opportunity for uh, different choices to end up, you know, winning the election rather than just the two-party winner-takes-all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: All right. Uh, we have another phone call, and it's Chris. Chris? Oh, Chris was gone. We had a – no. Yeah, Chris was our first one. Dan, who's our second one? Up. Oh. We don't know. We've lost it. Oh, well. <laughs> Call back. You know, right. Call back. Uh, the number is 855-0811-1877-285-9348. The web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can go there for a discussion uh, or to just leave your question or comment.
0: Okay. Under what circumstances does a libertarian think that it is appropriate for the country to go to war and spend money on war? Anybody?
4: Uh, well, the first the first requirement under the Constitution is that the United States House of Representatives, the the people's house, has to declare war. Well, of course, we haven't done that since what World War II. Mm-hmm. So, so th- these are really unconstitutional wars. And I would argue the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are actually wars of choice, mm-hmm. not wars in defense of our our, our nation, our borders. And uh, so, I, I would argue against all undeclared wars of choice. Would
3: if, like if, if we have not been attacked, then we should not be going militarily into another country. Or if an attack is not, you know, absolutely imminent, um, you know, it's self-defense is is the rationale, and that's for a nation as well as for individuals. Mm-hmm. We are allowed to protect our rights, our life, our property, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And there should be no out of these undeclared wars and and military actions, even though you know the Congress has very much ceded its authority to declare war to the executive branch, and I think that needs to uh, be backed away from because they, mm-hmm. they you know signed the bill with Bush that he could go in if he chose to, and that's just totally abdicating the responsibility that you have as a, a representative, mm-hmm. and that's not what the Constitution intended at all. Okay. Would you like to comment on that?
5: Well, I, I totally believe in the declaration of war uh, out of the Constitution, but I also believe there's something that a lot of people don't think about. And in accordance with common law, which was the basis for our our legal system, in common law, if you are threatened and basically danger is imminent, even though an attack hasn't taken place, y- you are authorized to defend yourself. preemptively... take take the person down. And I believe that also extends to the country, but still Congress has to take action to do their part, okay? They should declare war. But uh, I I think a lot of people believe that libertarians are just totally against war, and I I think uh, it should be looked at as we're just very pro-security, and if that security is threatened, we have to take action.
1: All right. Dave's back on the phone. Let's go to Dave. Sorry about that. I think I switched cell towers along the (laughs) way. Oh, I
0: hate when that happens.
2: Well, hey, I've been concerned about something for a while. Um, In supporting myself and my family, I've been working 40, 50, 60 hours a week for years without near the benefits that a lot of state and federal government employees have realized and continue to realize. And the last time I checked, I think in the city that I live in, the average work week for the employees is like 35 hours a week. Seems like we're carrying an awful lot of overhead there. What do you guys think we could do about
1: that? All right. Who wants to start?
3: Uh, Federal employees especially are earning 40 and more percent more than a similar job would pay in the private sector. And that is very out of line because the federal government doesn't have any money, doesn't produce anything. They only have money to use that they take out of the pocket of someone in the private sector. And it used to be that federal employees, well, you didn't get paid as much as you might in the private sector, but it was a secure job, and and that's one reason people took it. These days, it's a way to get rich and often to be able to retire early. And to then go on and take another federal job and earn another retirement um, income. And, you know, as we saw in Bell, California, it extends not just to federal employees, but can happen at a very local level also, where there's these people were paying themselves incredible uh, six-figure salaries for a very small town, for administering a very small town. And that kind of corruption... You know We've got to move things the other way.
0: Yeah, I have to publicly disagree with you a little bit on this one. I I have friends in the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. and believe me, they don't call it public service for nothing because they are making a personal financial sacrifice to work in that administration
3: because they could make more in the private sector. I'm sure that is true on some parts, but the statistics are the 40% more than what people make in the private sector. Now, obviously... You know, there's a range, and that's not every single um, a position.
4: And I'm, I'm sure we're not probably re- referring to, to your friends in the Obama administration uh, specifically with, with my comment here. But you, you also have to wonder about some of the people that do take a pay cut to work in government, like Hank Paulson, for example, who used to work at Goldman Sachs. I think a lot of the, Goldman Sachs has a very specific strategy to get their people to retire at 40 and go into high-level government positions, not just in this country but around the world and and get government favors. It's a, it's a really corrupting influence.
3: I understand your point. Right. Nope. And if we follow the Constitution, there wouldn't be the, – the federal government would be so much more limited that there would not be the goodies to give away. There would not be the tax breaks, the business subsidies. Um, it, it just – it would make a big difference. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think
1: on you know, this particular issue, maybe more than any other we've talked about, I think that, that uh, just like people generalize about what libertarians – Uh, I mean, I I think, you know, when you – the 40 percent – there are so many different kinds of jobs in federal government, state government, city government. I mean, if you're going to be a lawyer with government, you're not going to make nearly as much money as if you're a lawyer in the private sector. I mean, they're just – And there are other jobs that that would probably be the Mm -hmm. same thing.
3: And part of the problem is the pension system that's been set up for public employees. And unfortunately, the government is not funding those pensions. And that's going to break a lot of state governments. Um, You know, what we need to do is instead of a – we need to have a defined contribution uh, pension system. And it needs to be into accounts that the employee owns – Because right now, those employees, really, it's going to get to the point where they aren't going to get the pension they were promised. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not good for anybody. Right.
1: Okay. DJ's on the phone. DJ?
5: Yes, I had a question uh, to the panel. Uh, The uh, the Constitution limits the taking of property, yet national, state, and local historic preservations can kind of de facto put a lockbox on your property and declare it historic. I wonder what your position was on that kind of power and... What, what your suggestions are and things like that. Thanks. Uh
0: huh. Thank you.
4: My, my position would be that that's a taking. That's a, a, the legal term for that is a taking. And if the government uh, devalues your property, they should reimburse you for that.
5: Doc, do you have a thought about on that? Uh, well, as I already said, property rights are, are our, our primary right, and once the government gets involved in taking our property for any reason. Uh, I have problems with it especially since lately the the trend has been towards uh stealing property from people and turning it over to private industry just for an increased tax base and uh I I personally can't understand how anyone could think that's right including a judge but it's being done and it's wrong and I think if there's a uh, an issue with property rights Right now that's the issue that that is uh, needs the most attention mm-hmm. can you give me
1: a, an example of that because I know you've got some oh
4: just it, to, just to let people know what, yeah. exactly what you're talking new about. london oh. New London, Connecticut I believe it was the Supreme Court case where that was uh, the, the Supreme Court wrongly decided that in my in my view but uh, exactly what they said they they decided that if the government could take in more tax revenue by uh, taking this piece of property and and selling it to private developers, then then that was okay. And I I don't agree that that's that's the correct decision. I think many states have actually since that Supreme Court decision have actually taken steps to make sure that doesn't happen in, in states like Indiana.
5: Right. But it has happened across the country and it's still going on. It's happened in Texas, and I mean, and some of it is just small mom and pop businesses that have been there forever. But a developer wants that corner because it will make, you know, their investment so much better if they if they get that as far as building whatever they're building, a strip mall or whatever, and and it's taken by the government and given to the investment uh, organization, and, and it's happening all the time.
4: I've, I've heard about uh, Walmart using that tactic in Florida, for example. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Our phone number is again, 855-0811, 285
1: 9348 our web address, WFIU.org slash noon edition. We have three candidates from the Libertarian Party in with us today, talking about some of their views and their philosophies. Um, you are all three running for different positions, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask each of you, like if if by some you know flash of lightning you are elected, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but you have such an uphill battle, you know, what would be a piece of legislation you would attempt to pass? when you got to Washington or when you got to Indianapolis. And let's let's just go left to right. Let's start with Greg Noble, not, uh, who's running for the Ninth District congressional seat that's currently held by Baron Hill. If you are in Washington, you're not going to have a majority of libertarians there with you,
4: what would be, you know, your first course of action? What would you try to do? First I would co-sponsor the bill we were talking about earlier with Ron Paul and Barney Frank. It's a bipartisan bill to cut military spending wasteful military spending by a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And I would propose using those savings and reinvesting it in education, K-12 through scholarships based on the Promise Academy as featured on 60 Minutes. Here, our public schools fail one in every four children. We don't graduate them. Well, the Promise Academy graduates 100% of their children and they're all prepared for the workforce and and you know 100% are accepted into college. Well, that's the kind of results we need for every child, not just rich, you know, wealthy children, but all children. So I I would reinvest the military savings, which we already talked about. We spend as much on our military as the rest of the world combined. There's a lot of room for cuts there. Not not just the trillion dollars in the in the Frank Paul bill. But uh, reinvest those in K-12 scholarships, put poor, parent, poor families and, and the parents in those families in charge of their child's education and, and what school they want to send them to, and, and they deserve the Promise Academy treatment. Okay. Rebecca, so the, uh,
1: the, the throw-the-bums-out uh, movement works, and you're the next uh, Evan Bayh of Indiana, Senator Rebecca Sink-Burris. What's going to be your first step, your first move when you get to Washington?
3: It's a hard choice because there are so many. (laughs) But uh, one of the first things I would do would be propose a balanced budget amendment, capping growth at population and inflation. If we did that, we could have a balanced budget by 2020 without draconian cuts that would be almost impossible to make anyway. If we actually kept the spending at the current level and didn't allow it to grow for a few years, capped it there, we would be able to balance the budget by 2016 or 17. And that does not sound like it should take too much um, restraint, spending restraint, on the part of anyone in Congress. I think that's eminently doable. Uh, I'd also be working with the others to get uh, H.R. 25, the fair tax bill. Uh, It's also in the Senate. Uh, passed because that's the biggest jobs growth we could ever do. And that's what we need so desperately in this country right now our, our jobs.
1: Let me follow up on that. The fair tax bill has been um, part of uh, it's been in, in Greg's campaign mm-hmm. uh, as a, a point of contention for Todd Young. It's been, you know, Todd Young wants to raise your taxes by 23 percent. That is referring to the fair tax mm-hmm. bill. So can you explain what the fair tax bill is?
3: The fair tax – well, the part they leave out of that when they say that Todd Young wants to raise your taxes 23 percent on everything is that it eliminates almost every other federal tax. No income tax, no payroll taxes, uh, no capital gains tax, no um, death tax, on and on. It eliminates those taxes. You take home your entire paycheck. You don't have to spend hours and hours and neither does the business you work for trying to uh, comply with complicated IRS you know, laws and rules. And it is a simple 23% flat tax on all new goods and services. It spreads it out uh, so that instead of the payroll taxes where they're just done on people that are working, the tax will be paid by everybody, working or non-working, anytime you purchase something. Now, the way it really helps the poor, and this is one of my favorite things about the fair tax, is it really is uh, they get the biggest uh, increase in income from this uh, change in taxation. Everyone gets a prebate on the amount of tax, sales tax, they would have paid each month on basic uh, essentials, goods and services. And so that that is a, an immediate raise in income for those lower income taxpayers. And many people are t- paying more in payroll taxes than they pay in income taxes. But no one ever talks about giving tax relief to that group of of taxpayers. And so this is one of the best things that we could do for the country. Every economist who's really looked at this thing says it's the best jobs bill you know, that we could come up with. And it would bring jobs and capital back to this country and have an increase in growth that just, you know, is off the charts. In about 10 years, labor income would increase 40 percent. That's a nice increase. Mm -hmm. That's a lot less people on welfare rolls. That's a lot less people who have to have both spouses working so that we could take care of our families, you know, as we choose rather than having to have both parents out of the home. It has some real advantages.
4: You, you referred to the deceptive advertising on television about this issue, and I would encourage every, all the listeners to, to check out factcheck.org and some of the nonpartisan fact-checking groups who have who have called those ads deceptive for the very reasons Rebecca mentioned. And, and it's, so, it's so true that people don't think about payroll taxes as being as regressive as they are. 47% of Americans don't pay any income taxes. It's really the payroll taxes that, that's the burden. And, and the fair tax removes that and also gives a rebate so that nobody will pay any fair tax or national sales tax on the basic necessities of, of life. You get that rebated back to you at the beginning of each month to pay all those taxes. Okay. I want uh, We've got a couple of phone calls, but I want to give
1: uh, DACA an opportunity. You You get you you win the election. You're in Indianapolis
5: uh, next year. The first thing you're going to do is we have to reform the state tax system. And, and I really believe that in an adaptation of the fair tax will work at the state level. Uh, I, I was at a uh, at an interchange thing uh, on Tuesday night, and I was reminded, but the fair tax is a national tax. Well, it can still be done at the state level. And for those that say it can't be, it's because they want to keep the same system. And that way, the government has that power. And they have the legal authority, though not the ethical authorization, to steal our money and do with what they want. And they do that because they sit up there for years and years and years. And when that happens, they stop serving us as they're supposed to, and they begin to rule us. And that's wrong, and they can do that because they have our money. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. We have about three minutes to go, so we're going to have to go quickly, but we have two phone calls we're going to get to. Ted, you're first.
2: Yes, this this is Ted. Uh, My question is, is dealing with federal student loans, especially in the case of somebody who's like in the default area, Um, I'm in a condition right now where my wife and I are going to be having forced to sell our home in order to pay uh a, an outlandish student loan and there's no way out of it you can't uh, always, they say you can defer it you can you can put it on the side but that doesn't uh waver any of it at all uh i mean the the the, the payments are are higher than a mortgage payment would be on a $200,000 home right now and i'm basically a, a carpenter trying to pay all this stuff off so what do you folks um And if you look at the laws and everything, you can't even file bankruptcy on it anymore. Um, So, basically, it comes down to indentured servitude. So, what's the Uh, opinions of your panel right now? Okay.
1: We're going to have to get a very quick answer from (laughs) Rebecca or Greg. Which one? Rebecca?
3: It's very sad how...
1: Senate candidate, so...
3: Certainly. Um, Very quick. The student loan system has actually helped increase the price of going to college. It used to be that a young man especially could work a summer construction job and pay for his entire, you know, two semesters of education. And one of the reasons that that's not possible anymore is that with the opportunity to get a student loan, colleges did not have to compete on the basis of price. And the price of going to college has exploded. So part of what we need to do is uh, back off of that system a bit because it's turned out to be a nightmare for some people getting an education, you know, as our caller okay. has gotten into that nightmare.
4: And re- real quick, the, the fair tax, the only thing that it exempts mm-hmm. is education spending. So mm-hmm. that, that's another great okay. thing about the fair tax. All it's right.
3: considered an investment.
4: All right. We're going to go to
1: Joe. And Joe, if you have a comment, maybe a short comment. Joe. Joe. Mm-hmm. I think Joe has gone. All right. We don't have Joe. Well, we're we're out of time anyway. I don't know. He would have had to have a very short comment. Um, We've had uh, three guests today who are candidates from the Libertarian Party, and uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. I want to thank Rebecca Sink-Burris, a candidate in the race for United States Senate, Greg Knott, a candidate in the 9th Congressional District, Greg Noble Knott – I want to use your official name on the ballot – and David W. Doc Murdoch, candidate for state representative District 60. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Dan Goldblatt and engineer Mike Pashcash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
4: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.